All right, we're in Mark chapter 7. Ooh. Ooh. I'm so thankful to be with you in this time zone. Thank you, thank you. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that we would leave this place today with a fresh passion and zeal for the gospel. Lord, we embrace humility. Father, we ask that you would, you would mold us, shape us. And Holy Spirit, would you lead? Would you speak and minister? And would you exalt Jesus in this place? Father, we are so desperate for your glory in our region. It's in the precious name of your son, Christ Jesus, we pray. Everybody said amen. The Pharisees asked Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Say, even John the Baptist, disciples, they fast. Jesus says, there will be no fasting while the bridegroom is at the, the ceremony. There will be no fasting while the bridegroom is with the bride. But he says, there's a day coming when I'll be taken, and then the, then the bride will fast. In other words, there, there's a longing. Jesus says, there will be a day when I am taken, when I go, and there will be a longing that rises up within the church. And the church, in this desire, kind of ate up with desire for Jesus to return, for Jesus' kingdom, for his glory, for his nature and his power. Then the church will enter into a desire that leads her to fasting and prayer. As I've studied and read and thought over the last several years in honesty, I've become convinced that there are several themes that you find in the hearts of communities that really take serious the gospel message. And, and one theme is this desire that they all carry. Again, it's a prophetic statement in, in the ministry of Jesus that this desire will come to fruition within the church. There are other themes, I, I continually, as I read about evangelists and missionaries who prayed and fasted and who won souls, they're constantly looking at Isaiah 62 and this idea of there being a watchman on the wall who does not sleep but cries out day and night. And, and the concept there is these people who are ate up with this desire, they embrace intercessory prayer and they even lose sleep to pray. That almost sounds wrong to me to lose sleep. Oh, God. Well, um, Bryce, who was with the Every Heart team, oh, we were texting recently, and he asked, um, you know, what is, what is one book I should be reading this summer? And if you've ever texted me that, I've probably given you this book. Um, but the, the diary, the, the biography of Praying John Hyde by Basil Miller is always one of my first go-tos that I love for people to read. I've told you about John Hyde before. He was a missionary to India. And John Hyde, um, he was the one you remember who said, uh, give me souls lest I die. And in his biography's history tells us that he spent so much time praying, um, kind of on his knees with his head in the ground, that his physician said that his heart cavity had actually shifted because he spent almost half his life in an upside-down posture. And they told him that he'd have to quit praying that way or he'd surely die. 
And he didn't quit praying that way, and he did die from the from that shift. Well, when John Hyde came to India, India is such a strange place, right? Like so many people, and obviously lots of um, uh, paganism, lots of different religion, and um, just just crowded. And when John Hyde came to India as a missionary. He struggled, um, he had a bit of a hearing problem and kind of struggled to get the language, but he got it. Uh, but he gave himself to prayer. He decided, looking at a nation with poverty and lots of um, pagan religion and tons of people, he decided that the, the best way that he could bring the gospel to India was to pray. He decided that the greatest resource the church had to engage the hearts of people was prayer. And so he became this wonderful evangelist. At one point, uh, he prayed, God, give me one soul a day. And for a year, he had one soul a day. He got all the way up to four people. He would say, God, I want to see four people saved every day. And he did, man. He saw so many people came to the Lord. But the, the secret sauce of it all was that he spent long hours in prayer. Now, these missionaries every year would have what they called a prayer convention. Um, and in the prayer convention... They would have sessions where they would study the Bible together. They would have meals together, but they would also have a tent, one tent for men and one tent for women that was just given for prayer, just to pray. And it's said that John Hyde would also often come to the convention and just kind of live in the tent. He would skip meals. He would stay up all night long, just pray and pray and pray. Well, in 1905, um, maybe 1906, I'd have to find my date here, my notes, he, the, the prayer convention had decided that they were going to focus on sin and asking God to purify their hearts. And what they kind of said was that they saw through India a river of sin that was sweeping people away from God and towards hell. And they wanted to pray into this idea of, of them being pure in heart and snatching people um, from the grips and bondage and temptations of sin to see the glory of Jesus in the gospel. And so they gave themselves to this theme. I think it was the year 1905. It could have been 1906. Well, John Hyde was the person who was supposed to preach every morning. And so he stood up to preach at the opening session. And the first thing he talked to the missionaries about was whether or not they truly gave room for the Holy Spirit in their ministry. Was the Holy Spirit their beginning and their end? Were they spirit-led and spirit-dependent? Or were they ministering out of pride, ministering out of the strength of the flesh? And um, people were just convicted, and they cried, and they wept. And every morning when John Hyde was supposed to preach, he didn't preach anymore. He just kind of said, let's just stop everything until we make sure that the Spirit is the center of what we're doing. And they continued down this concept. What I, what I want to show you today, and forgive me if my thoughts are jumbled. It's totally Brad's fault. Um, what I want to show you today is that it starts in this place of desire. This Jesus saying, when I leave, the church will fast and pray because they will desire. I've told you before that Faber used to say that the, the, the lack of desire is the greatest ill of all ills. In other words, Faber would say, the church is her sickest when she loses desire for Jesus. You're totally sick if you don't wake up in the morning and long for the glory of Jesus. So they start with desire and longing for Jesus and his kingdom and they fast and they pray and they long for souls. And then there's always this sifting, this purging, this, 
this purity and holiness that has to rise up within the community because Paul tells Timothy that he must set himself apart, that in a great house there are many vessels, but if you want to be a useful vessel to the master, you must set yourself apart, setting yourself apart towards God for his purposes and for his plans. In other words, God is looking for holy vessels, empty vessels, to be filled with his power and to be used in his kingdom. And one missionary to India who was a part of those meetings with John Hyde, he he wrote this. He said, God wants pure vessels for his service, clean channels which to pour forth his grace. He wants purity in the very center of the soul. Unless God can have a pure vessel purified by the fire of the spirit, he cannot use that vessel. So at the conclusion of this this prayer convention, um, one of the missionaries wrote, God wants us fully devoted to him so that he can fill and use us. In our language at Christian Renewal, in our church, I've said continually, you can read it on our website, it's in our paperwork, yada, 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 that we are after full devotion to Christ Jesus. Today, I want to take the time to ponder when we say to each other, we want full devotion to the Lamb. What do we mean? What is full devotion to the Lamb? If this is a central part of what kind of community we're trying to create, and there must be intentionality with what we're creating here. How do we define de- devotion? Is devotion just devotional time? Right? I think we need to have devotional times in the morning. But what I'm trying to argue for today is that devotion it is not just an act, but devotion is a state of fully belonging to God from sun up to sundown. Right? From 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 today till the day they put dirt in my face, I belong. I am his. He's my master. My lover, Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Sometimes people will say, is the life you're living today what Jesus intended to purchase? Or is it lackluster? Is Christianity and our culture lackluster? Today, as we we turn to Jesus' words again in Matthew 7, he's going to talk to us about devotion, what devotion is and what devotion isn't, where it begins and where it ends. And he's going to show us that many times in religious um, settings, we tend to think of devotion and define devotion fully on the basis of external factors. We become fixated on the external And Jesus is going to show us today that devotion begins in the heart of a man, flows from the heart of a man. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 7, verse 14 through 23. He called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, what defiles a person comes from within, out of the heart of man, 
come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, we've, we've shifted in Mark's gospel a bit. Remember from chapters 4, 5, and 6, we were looking so much at the miraculous power of Jesus. On display was Jesus' own omnipotence, his deity, his ability to speak to a storm in authority and tell it to stop, to walk on water, to raise Jairus' dead daughter from the grave and stand on her feet again. We see this man is a man of power. But as we turn to Mark 7, we begin to see that this man of power is also a man of teaching. The man of power is a man of wisdom. The authority to drive out demons, that man who possesses that authority also expounds for us the the wisdom of God. He is the Logos incarnate. He's the word of God incarnate, expositing for us the heart of God and what truth is and what truth isn't. So we've shifted from displays of power to displays of wisdom and truth. And so the authority to raise the dead, that same man with the same authority is now calling you to purity and to holiness and to recognize that external religious holiness is not what God desires. We've transitioned. He starts today with these words, and I guess I don't have the time to express this fully, but Jesus says this, hear me, all of you, understand. What is it? What is he doing there? He's commanding the attention of the crowd. You listen to what I'm saying now. He gives a parable and the disciples don't understand. And you do notice what he says to the disciples. Are you also without understanding? He says, do you not see? So there's this theme here being expressed in the text that that we need to have spiritual ears and eyes to see what God is saying. We need the wisdom of heaven. This is one of the reasons why Paul will pray in Ephesians chapter 1 that the church has all spiritual understanding, that the church grows in wisdom. So Jesus stands and says, you need to listen to me. You need to allow your spiritual ears to perk up to what I'm about to say, because what I'm about to say is crucial to your walk with the Lord, to spirituality, to truly belonging to God. Now, he shifts to say, what goes into a man cannot defile him. You remember last week, Pastor Jim was here at Hilton Head, and last week we were dealing with the disciples of Jesus who did not um, go through ritual washings before they ate, remember? And so the, the Pharisees, they, they finally got something to catch Jesus on. They want so bad to have a, a, a reason to up, overturn his ministry. They're constantly analyzing, watching, nitpicking, looking for something to, to, to rip the rug out from under Jesus's ministry. And all they've got is that the disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. And Jesus turns to show them that they are continually looking to what we sometimes call fence laws, or they're looking at the Mishnah or the oral tradition. Judaism teaches an oral tradition, and they're using an oral tradition to overthrow the written word of God. In other words, 
you're excusing yourself from the commands of God by using the tradition of men. So it's in that context that Jesus now turns from speaking to scribes and Pharisees, and he begins to speak to a crowd, and he says, listen to what I'm about to say. Because what you've been taught, what you've seen in culture, what's been displayed for you, what's been propped up as spirituality, Jesus is saying, it's all fraudulent. Spirituality cannot be mandated from external factors. Now, the logic of what he said is obvious. What you eat goes into your mouth and out of your stomach and out of your body, and that food has no bearing on whether or not you truly love God. Jewish dietary laws, in many ways, the dietary laws were intended to help the Jews to have separation between the pagan nations. By following their dietary restrictions, they would be limited, they would have a a safeguard, if you will, to not participate in pagan festivals, to not participate in the sacrifice of of certain animals to certain gods. The the dietary laws were to keep them separate. But, but, But the dietary laws alone don't deal with the fact that man in his fallen state is wicked. External restrictions cannot produce appropriate internal affections. I want to say a few things that are a bit controversial. And again, it's 100% Brad's fault. If you're offended, told me to say it. Let's just start there. External regulations cannot produce internal affections. Colossians 2.20, remember we studied this probably a year ago now. Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to all things that are that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now remember when Paul writes to the Colossians, he's dealing a bit with the early Gnosticism, which says that physical things are evil and spiritual things are good. And so the church is being taught that, that things they touch are, are wicked and So Paul's saying, how slow are you? There is no value in this kind of earthly regulation. It has no value, no capacity, no ability to stop the indulgence of the flesh. There we find the key. We have a flesh that wants to indulge. But many times... In our lack of wisdom, our lack of insight, we begin to hyperfixate on external measures. And I just want to say a few things really slowly so you can catch this. The kinds, the kinds of churches, the kinds of religious groups that beat the, the drum of, of external uniformity beat that drum because they know nothing of internal intimacy. When a church's entire message is, you need to dress like us. When the entire message is, you can't listen to that, or you you need to eat this way, or if you don't tuck your shirt in, you're not holy. It's hard to tuck a shirt in with hips this big, okay? It's just wildly frustrating. 
And if I could just kind of go down this road for a second. There are days when today my, my three-year-old, Ike, you know, my little boy walked in and I said, dude, you don't have any shoes on. So you come to church without shoes? He said, they're in mama's car. I don't think that counts. I think they're supposed to be on your feet. There, there are settings where your toddler not being dressed appropriately is the most important factor of the entire Sunday gathering. And I just want to say, I have nothing to do with that. My toddler wants to wear his Spider-Man outfit, whatever. I just want to make sure he sings, Jesus loves me, this I know today. And, and I, um, you know, I did the like rocker thing as a teenager. And so I had all the piercings and the tattoos and the mohawks and the long hair. And, um, we used to wear girl jeans. That, they, that was before skinny jeans were a thing. You had to buy the girl jeans. So that might be another issue. We'll have to come back to that. Um, and, um, as my heart began to be captured by God and I, and I wanted so desperately to know Jesus, I can remember walking into certain churches and certain settings and all people wanted to talk to me about was my pants or my hair or my lip ring hanging out my face. I still have a scar in my mouth. If you want to see later, I'll show you. It's awesome. Um, and I can remember saying in my heart and verbally saying, I want to know God. I don't, I don't want to talk to you about how tight my jeans are. I want you to talk to me about God. And what we'll do if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll have a young woman come into our church dressed promiscuously. And it almost never fails that someone in the church is going to pull the girl aside and ream her about her appearance. But if you have the wisdom of heaven, you recognize that when a young woman is dressed, especially extremely promiscuously, she has a heart issue. And reaming her about her physical appearance does not address the root of the matter. That's low-hanging fruit. And if you think that's spirituality, you know nothing of the cross. It's very low-hanging fruit. And so sometimes when a, when a young person comes in dressed in a way that might not even be appropriate, if we run to, you need to go change your outfit, and we don't run to, man, Jesus loves you. And I'm okay just to be with you for today and tomorrow, and we'll get to that. That In discipleship, at some point, you talk about modesty, sure. But the first thing we need to talk about is whether or not you recognize that the Lord of the universe was pierced on a tree because he so adored you and wanted you in his kingdom. You don't need the attention of man. You have the attention of heaven. But churches who fixate, fixate on whether or not you wear the tie. I want to tell you why I don't wear a tie. It hurts. Is it some kind of torture? (laughs) Churches that fixate on external regulations, almost always it's because they haven't learned to fixate on the beauty of Christ Jesus. I want you to leave this place saying in your heart, Jesus is more wonderful than I even thought. I could care less if you leave this place thinking, oh, I better better change my outfit next time. Purity, devotion, biblical holiness, it arises from the affections. 
Now, Jonathan Edwards did so much work on this, and it's really helped me over the years. The, the idea of holiness must begin in the, in the sacred place of my heart. Now, the Greek is going to just use the word cardia, which is just heart, where we get the word like cardiac. Um, but the idea here is your heart is kind of the seat of your will. Your emotions, your thoughts, your, the heart is, is the place where you make decisions. It's who you are, the most central part of you. So Jesus is saying that there is a, there is a, I like to think of it this way. There's a throne, if you will, in your chest. And what sits on that throne will dictate what flows externally. But you need to make sure that your intentionality, your efforts, your purposes are concerned with what's sitting on the throne. And so I want to wake up every day and pray, God, may I love Jesus with a violent, ferocious love today. Would you be the center of my life? And if I choose not to use profanity today, it will not be because I don't want Brad to see me in a certain light. I will choose to not use profanity today because I am so in love with Jesus that I want my words to bless his name. I, 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 forgive me, I'm just going to be a little practical. If, if I teach my kids about the negative impacts of pornography, and pornography is wildly destructive, right? We know this at this point. To the, even to the basic makeup of the brain, there are chemical things taking place that are so addictive. Pornography promotes the hypersexualization of, of women. Young men who are addicted to pornography tend to look at every woman as if they're a sexual object and not as if they're, they're a person of dignity created in the image of God. There are so many negative impacts to pornography. But if I teach my kids, here are all the negative impacts to pornography. Here are all the reasons why this is destructive to your life. And they decide to not partake in pornography that would be, it would feel like a win. But what happens is if the, if the strength of the decision to not partake in pornography is built on the basis of it's negative for me and the basis of it's negative for me alone, then all we do is it's like grabbing a balloon. Paul calls it the indulgence of the flesh. I can squeeze the air out and I'm not participating in pornography, but the air just pops right back up over in anger and I can try to control the flesh with the will, and I can try to argue for the negativity of alcoholism and why you shouldn't partake in alcoholism, and I can steer my kids away from it. But if they never touch a drop of alcohol, but they live the rest of their lives in gossip and slander, I just squeezed a balloon, and the air shifted somewhere else. And, and the problem, again, is that we have, we have a flesh, an indulgence. We have something on the throne of our heart, and, and we exchange that, that addiction to lust or we exchange that addiction to alcoholism or that addiction to, to gossip. I must exchange it with the person of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so I want my kids to not participate in pornography knowing that it has negative impacts on their mind, but mostly and firstly because it dishonors Christ Jesus. And if that becomes the position of holiness, right, like, I, I don't participate in gossip, not because I don't want so-and-so to hear about what I said and then to not like me, but I choose to not participate in gossip because the Holy One of Israel stands with me and I don't want to offend his ears. My, my decision-making begins to be, I won't let anything have this throne. This throne belongs to Jesus. And then from there, we begin to, 
to think biblically about this idea of the indulgence of the flesh, or to think biblically about this concept that we are fallen in Adam, yes, born again in Jesus, but there's still a struggle with this destructive, unsatisfying flesh thing that always wants more. And we have to stumble into, if Paul says external religion is of no value to stopping the indulgence of the flesh, you have to ask the question, what is of value to stopping the indulgence of the flesh? And one answer would be total focus on the Lamb of God who was slain for me. My second answer would be Paul teaches that the Holy Spirit has a particular ministry that the Puritans called mortification. In, in Romans, Paul teaches us, um, I'm trying to get the reference. I'm going to say eight, and it's, uh, it is eight. Paul teaches us in Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the Holy Spirit has a particular ministry that we've largely forgotten about. Again, the Puritans call it mortification. Mortify means to kill like a mortician. This, this ministry is, Paul says, that we have the ability to murder the desires of the flesh, not to squeeze the balloon so that they just shift from one way to another, but we actually can die to the desires of the flesh. But the weapon by which we murder the flesh is the power and person of the Holy Spirit. So, so now, the, the purpose of my life is, one, to make sure that Jesus is enthroned in my heart and is to walk with the person of the Holy Spirit every day. And when the flesh rises or lust tempts me or anger tempts me or whatever, greed tempts me, I don't address it by saying, I, I, I really don't want the elders of the church to think of me that way. Or if I act out in anger, that could be destructive to my wife. And so I'm going to try to reason logically in my brain as to why I shouldn't do that to lead myself to the right result, the right mode or method or vehicle of conquering the flesh is to stop and say, Holy Spirit, by your power, would you crucify right now those desires that dishonor Jesus? Holy Spirit, by your strong arm, kill everything in me that wants to take Jesus's throne in my heart. Now, from from there, we can find purity. From there, we can recognize that Jesus says, that external regulations have nothing to do with devotion. Devotion is about what's happening inside your vessel, inside your heart. We have to cleanse the inside of the cup so that we can carry the pure water of this gospel. God is looking for men and women who will do the hard work of denying idolatry and the desires of the flesh. Looking for men and women who will place Jesus at the center of, of their life and on the throne of their heart and who will walk with the Holy Spirit every day by his strength and his power. And God says, those kind of people, they are useful to me. And you can't want revival. You can't want awakening. And you can't want souls to come to Jesus and live like hell. In the words of these Indian missionaries in 1905, they said, they saw, they, they described a picture of a black river, a river of sin sweeping through the cities and sweeping people away. And they said, like, we can't play in the river and expect God to use us to snatch people from it. Seth, come. 
please. Are we teaching our kids devotion to Jesus? Or as we disciple in our church, in our small groups, in our prayer gatherings, are we discipling in a way that says, man, what matters first and foremost is that your eyes are set on the person of Jesus, that you really love and adore Jesus. What matters first and foremost is that you are intimate with God. If what we're doing is nitpicking at low-hanging fruit, it's probably because we've never seen the glory of the Lamb of God. When you become mesmerized with God's glory, it's then and only then can you live pure and holy before God. Holiness is not a matter of do's and don'ts. Holiness is a matter of what do you love? What do you love? Go ahead and stand to your feet. Pastor Brad had just a quick word last night as we prayed that I want to ask him to come share. But as Seth leads us, I want you just to ponder. I know that's a bit of a simple word, but I want us to ponder whether or not we played in legalism. And I want us to sure up in our hearts, man, we are going to be a house of devotion to the Son of God, to the Lamb of God. We are going to live holy, not on the basis of we want to appear a certain way before our community, but we want to appear a certain way before the Lamb. We want to give him the worship that's due his name.